Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, she's charged with maintaining Not Quite Great Books pens, keeping them current, and making sure they are full of ink. It's Daniel Hanley. Oh my god, that is honestly the most flattering uh, (laughs) (laughs) intro. As you probably know, circulating on the interwebs this week has been like, which pen are you? Pen debate, yeah. and Danielle like, and I are on the same team on this one. We're on the same team, and it is the and it's one of the pens that's on there. It's number five, and it's like, how is anybody answering anything else? There's a lot of people answering other things. I know, but I do feel like five, like amongst the people at least that I follow on Twitter, which is like the pilot. Uh, G2 gel pen. Um, <laughs> Wait, no, 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 no free advertising. <laughs> Pilot, give us give us money. We want some of that. Oh my God, sponsor our Patreon. <laughs> we'll review your pens. We love them. Um, anyway, I really appreciate that intro. What nice synergy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Corporate synergy, our favorite thing. So we're I'm always looking for. Yeah, we love, we love Pilot pens and making sure they're full of ink and the I, I tried to like do the way that Walter Taffet says yeah. ink but I can't quite he, can't it's, quite get there it's very specific yeah it's impressive so uh Danielle <laughs> what ink did we spill uh oh. our note taking on it's American season three sorry episode amazing eight. <laughs> <Do> <laughs> <not> apologize <laughs> <laughs> It is directed by Dan Atias. It is written by Joshua Brand. And Danielle has the IMDb summary. Yeah, so the episode eight IMDb summary is Martha and Clark's marriage meets its most challenging test yet. (laughs) Understatement of the year. (laughs) Semicolon. Pressure on Philip intensifies. I think this might be our first semicolon. Oh, I'm sure there have been some before, but they do prefer the short declarative vague sentences. Well, it's like, there's a lot more things that happen in this episode than just those two things. Yeah. I mean, and I respect, like, you don't want to spoil stuff, but, like, you also don't want to pretend your audience is not smart. Yeah. Oh, my God. But here we are, here to talk about Season 3, Episode 8, Divestment, and those two things, and many other things. Yeah, definitely. definitely. And so I think, Danielle, what we want to talk about with this episode are the various interrogations or, like, sharp and or emotional questionings of various characters. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously, like, a plot thing that has emotional and character relevances throughout the episode. But it's also something that I'd suggest the editing of this particular episode is getting us to think about in particular yeah like if we consider the just like the opening scene before the uh, title sequence mm-hmm. right we get martha office gossip about taffet um we cut to interrogating venter and todd we cut to nina's sentence being reduced right so we have these multi and then we have martha's interrogation um as well I forget if that's before or after the title sequence. Um, but anyway, so like we have these three things with, and this then mirrors immediately after the title sequence, that there's all these like sharp questionings yeah. that are cut into one another as opposed to, as opposed to like, here's three minutes of right. Venter and Todd. It's here is 37 seconds of Venter and Todd. And now we're going to cut to a short scene with Nina, a short scene with Martha and the FBI folks, etc. So, Given that the episode, I think structurally, editing-wise, is asking us to think about interrogation, Danielle, what interrogation should we start with? 
I think, and I really appreciate you calling attention to the, like, the the editing of this episode and the way that that's working sort of in this structure as well. Maybe let's start with Taffet interrogating Martha, um, just because that seems like the, at least for me, like, the most pressing and the thing that kind of comes, it links part of what was happening in the last episode, and it comes back around in so many different ways in this episode. So I think let's start there. Yeah, I mean, even the camera work is doing interesting things in Martha's interrogation, right? Yeah. Whether it's, like, the shot behind her or the shot, like, what the most common shot in this interrogation scene with Taffet is actually, like, the camera's just over Taffet's, like, right shoulder. Yep. And um, it's looking straight at Martha. Martha framed by some, like, by the attorney general or some DOJ person portrait on the one hand and Reagan on the other. Right. So just like the kind of structure of that shot itself, that it comes back to a couple of times is notable, but I don't know. I think the thing that struck me the most other than that about Martha's interrogation is how good she is and how well she handles this situation, which I think makes sense given what we talked about at length in the last episode about her, like going to the bathroom and destroying the recording device. And here we see like the flip side of that of after a day or a couple of days or whatever of panic um, about the situation that she is composed enough as much as she's freaking out to like smoothly handle this interrogation. The smoothness with which she handles this interrogation is honestly like both surprising, not surprising, but then also just in general impressive. Like she just like slips right into it. The note that I have to myself, like from watching this is putting tacit knowledge into practice, which is like what we talked about last time, but specifically that line where, where Taffet is interrogating her about the pens and about like whether she's the one that supplies the pens and like, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, he kind of comes back to that topic after he's asked her about this a little bit earlier on, which is like such a clear interrogation tactic where like you sort of pick up a thread and, and want to make sure that someone is consistent with what they answered earlier. I right? better never be interrogated by Danielle. I don't think I would make it given, <laughs> given your knowledge of interrogation techniques. I read and watch a lot of spy things. <laughs> um, and Martha just seamlessly is like, I do do that. Just like I said to you before like a version of that, like very, very calm. And then she just remarks like, but that's not a supply pen. So it wouldn't have been me. So, and the other thing that struck me about this particular interaction is like, it seems like Martha is trying her best not to lie. And that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course we're meant to, and I did in fact call back to the scene where Nina is trained to pass the lie detector. And like granted Martha is not hooked up to a lie detector, although Taffet understands himself to be a like human lie detector. So maybe we, there's a little transfer of that in this episode or in the scene, but Nina Martha, I've meant to say Martha, and I said Nina instead. So Martha, you know, has not had the formal training, we think, to, you know, pass At least we haven't seen it. Right. Um, Again, either from Clark or from the, or from the FBI themselves about, like, if they're approached or something. But to your point, she has the tacit knowledge to do this. And... 
like give in some ways an even more confident version of herself, right? Yeah. Like she, may, she has one or two lines that like have some sarcasm or bite to them as yeah. well. In the yeah. Interrogation, which I suspect is along with your pointing out that she's trying not to lie, that that ends up being a kind of like reserve of authoritativeness or certainty or confidence that she's mustering or something like that. But she's definitely like extremely well composed facing this interrogation. Yeah, she like is extremely well composed and you know, you watched half it trying to not necessarily catch her. The the thing that I wrote down is like how do they not suspect her? And because like the way that Taffet is questioning her versus the way that Taffet is questioning Adderholt, which is a whole other thing and we'll talk about a little bit later. Like, he does not betray any sort of, like, suspicion. Even Gad doesn't really seem like he suspects her. Now, maybe they're they're trying not to give that up, but it just, like, it doesn't seem like they suspect her, which to me is like, oh, Philip and Elizabeth and, like, the KGB have done such a good job of choosing Martha as this, this, like, mark for them because, like, she is part of the, like, mundane office culture that no one is, like, thinking twice about. And on top of that, she is, right, a lower-ranking woman who is the secretary and thus is like in a position of like uh, employment submission to write these like smart smart men right who supposedly run the fbi or whatever so that she becomes easier to overlook even though and i mean this is you know what they're doing with these like different kind of dramatic irony situations like all of the FBI counterintelligence folks, if you could like take them out of the situation, they would yeah. be like, no, actually like a woman, right. Is in fact, like we would, you know, use that tactic against the KGB. They're likely to use that against us. Stan right. maybe had a like torrid affair with Nina <laughs> recent in the recent past. You know, there are all these things where, where could you imagine, <laughs> right. Where like they shouldn't be overlooking like a lower ranking woman for a situation like this and yet they still are misogyny runs deep yeah yeah, of course that's the you know broader the the broader point and (laughs) remains always true you have a note here about the final shot of the episode well let's before we get there let's think about how it's not only like martha being interrogated but uh, martha herself doing the interrogating or attempting to do the interrogating with regards to clark and the kind of next to last scene of the entire episode where clark comes over and martha gives him the you should know who walter taffet is like who are you are you really Clark? Is this really real? There's like, I, you know. You, uh, wait, who is Walter Taffet? It's you. Who are you? Yeah. Is like a, not only a chilling like set of lines, a chilling scene, but like this scene is so well acted. Like I had chills. I was like, holy shit. This, this yeah. is great. Because we get the full range of Allison Wright as Martha yeah. here, the both her like resolve and attempting to like be in control and like her certainty that something is extremely fucking wrong. Yeah. And the semi like melting into Clark and being unable to resist yeah. Clark's game, spycraft, whatever we want to call it. 
at the same time. But yeah, the he's you, who are you? And then the repetition of who are you and variations of it throughout yeah. the throughout the scene is it's really incredible. Yeah. Uh, who are you? Who are you, Clark? And then he, and then Philip as Clark is like, I'm your husband. And then my note is in all caps, this is bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm the man you married who loves yeah. you more than you know. Our love is what is true. I didn't want to fall in love but we did. You're a true and honest and good woman. I would protect you. Like these are Clark's lines, which is the standard Clark fare with a little more drama to it than usual. Yeah, like a little more urgency. And yet he like does not give anything up, right? Like he does not say, there's no excuse. There's no like, oh, actually I'm, I told you this because he just like doesn't explain, which is like, on the one hand, like such a power move. And on the other hand, just feels like, again, Martha will be dead soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the gaslighting gets overused wherever is a phrase, yeah. but this is like a, a case where it's extremely appropriate. And yeah. the like just total diversion or I guess, you know, to use the episode title, like divestment from Martha's actual questions that yeah. like he kind of tacitly admits that like, he's not exactly who he says yeah. he is, but then steamrolls right past that to standard Clark lines with the added intensity. Yeah. And just to draw a kind of parallel to the, the interrogation Taffet's interrogation of Martha, where like Martha is doing her best not to lie or not to outright lie or say any of these things. It feels like Clark is doing a similar thing where he like adding a backstory or adding a set of like ideas or like being like, no, actually I'm this, I told you this because of X, Y, and Z adding explanations would have been like a set of lies that he would have to like that maybe deviate from the the storyline, the character, the role that he has stepped into. And so just like Martha, he is saying basically as little as possible in order to like maintain his position and try to skirt the suspicion. Yes. And also not, you know, making sure he's not giving Martha any more yeah. in case Martha the next morning rolls into work and be like, I have to tell you about something and someone. Yeah. And to your point, Danielle, Clark, I, Philip Jennings, right, as Clark, yeah. I think does, um, does genuinely care for Martha, maybe loves Martha, does think that she's a true and honest and good woman, even if a manipulable woman mm-hmm. as well so you know i'm your husband i'm the man you marry that's kind of true right like there, there was a wedding yeah. ceremony um you know Cla- claudia and elizabeth were there um as w- to witness it so yeah the point about how they're both using is m- much of the truthiness as they can uh access yeah is i think a really good catch i'll take it this yeah is- fucked up <laughs> so so then we then we end with well the final moment of that scene and then the final shot of the episode right so yeah. the final moment of that scene is they embrace and so i'm interested in like how genuine you think martha's embrace of clark is in that moment and that's paired yeah. with the very final shot it's like a very cliche shot but that's to great effect i think in this yeah. episode of you know, Philip is kind of pretending to be asleep on his back, but his eyes are open. Martha yeah. is definitely pretending to be asleep on her side, but her eyes are open. Yeah. And they're both naked. So, like, question A, how 
genuine as Martha's embrace of Clark towards the end? And then B, did they are we meant to understand that they had sex in between that embrace and the final shot of the episode because they are now totally naked? I mean, those are good questions. So, like, first, I think that the embrace is... I think... Martha, you use the phrase like melts into Clark. And I think that's really an apt phrase because I think part of their dynamic is like Clark has this like weird power over her. And like that melting is even in this moment where she does not want to like melt where she's seething, where she's scared. Mm -hmm. We see her move away from him on the couch. Yes. Yes. Right. And yet like, he says, like, I didn't want to fall in love with you, but I did. I'm your husband and I love you. All the things that you that you laid out, I think, like, those are exactly the things that have power over Martha. So I think, like, even uh, maybe there's, like, an ambiguity in the embrace, but I do, but, like, a, a complicated, an ambiguity out of, like, complexity, not an ambiguity out of, like, I'm not sure how I feel. Right, because Clark's, what the words he gives to Martha are playing all of the things that Martha's, like, extreme idealization of love, of uh, marriage, of Clark himself, right, are, you know, that's, he's giving all of those things back to her in words in that moment. Exactly. So, and I think like something to your second question, like, are we meant to think that they had sex? Yeah, I think the answer is yes, because like the thing that these two are good at with each other is sleeping together. And it's like, that is part of their story as to like part of why Martha doesn't know anything about Clark or about Philip, right? Is because like, that like sex God Clark is like, is a big piece of their relationship. For sure. So I think, like, yeah, they did sleep together because I think, like, again, I think Clark has this power over Martha, which is, like, the very dynamic that Philip needs for this piece of, like, the mission to follow through. And we've discovered last week that Martha's gun and their copy of the Kama Sutra in the same dresser drawer. I don't know. There's, like, a a whole, like, Lacan, like, Freud situation happening Sex and death, sex drive, death drive. (laughs) Like, the classic. The lack, lack, phallus, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's a a different cave than what we... (laughs) Yeah, we got some other ideas. (laughs) We've got something else on tap for you today. All right, Danielle. So I think it's it's only logical that next we go to kind of, in some ways, the centerpiece and most classic interrogation um, of the many interrogations of this episode, and that is in Kobo and yeah. Philip and Elizabeth interrogating Venter and Todd, mostly apart from one another, and then of course the execution of Venter. Yeah. So I think like you're right that this feels like the centerpiece, and I also feel like this it's a set of scenes, right? Cause we like yeah. come back to it mm-hmm. a couple of mm-hmm. times, but this set of scenes feels like, again, like another, another round of like serious spy craft that we get in the series. Interrogation tactics here are so interesting, right? Like for me, you have um, like this idea that if you kill a man in front of uh, the one they think that can help them, that's going to be, that's going to tell them something like show you what your fate could be. So as to like push you to, to give up the information you're unwilling to say, and it works like it works for them, but the execution is like, 
incredibly intense. And also it comes like Elizabeth has a gun in her hand, right? She's, she's going to shoot Venter mm-hmm. and, and then tries to give the gun to Nkobo to shoot Venter. And he, and he is like, you don't understand. Like you already have a country. Like you don't know what it's like to fight for this. And we've heard over and over again, last episode and this episode that like his life and his family and his like existence are on the line. Yep. And like, you see the extent to which like, I think that comes out in the way that he's pouring the gasoline over Venter, lighting him on fire, just like, after this, putting him in a tire, right? Like putting a tire around him, yeah. It was just, there's an intensity, that, like both visually, but also I think like emotionally and psychologically, there's an intensity around this interrogation that like, it's not that it isn't present in the other interrogations, but there's something about the stakes here that feels so much higher. And the, like the consequences are also higher. I don't know. I've, as you can hear, I've, this was like, this was a lot for me to take in. Right. And it's also the actual kind of death itself or the, you know, the execution of, right. And, you know, I mean, there's an, I don't think we're going to go down this route in particular, but there's like a kind of political theory angle in this as well, where always, where in Kobo, takes on the role of like the sovereign who determines yeah. life and death, right? He, you know, says for crimes against the South African people, yeah. right? You are sentenced to death. Yeah. And so he like does that kind of performative, like judicial, judicial executioner role, right? Yeah. In that particular moment. And I think that, and so that's, you know, like the kind of one intellectual level that the show is working on. And then like on a very, very direct kind of aesthetic level, right? There's, I think, more of the effects of Venter being burned alive than we would expect from like an FX show necessarily. Like it's, there's yeah. there's a lot, like there's a lot of the visuals. And then the sound work in particular is I think what really got me about okay. the execution this particular time both the screams of Venter and then as he no longer is able to do so, like the camera is on Philip and Elizabeth watching this and you can just hear the flames. And so really excellent, like fully work from the, from the Americans crew there. No, really excellent. And then they sort of come back to Todd and Todd is freaked out like he maybe doesn't know or uh, my sense of it is that like didn't know exactly what he had gotten himself into but knew that he was in over his head which i think is sort of revealed to us when he's like i couldn't do it i couldn't he he wanted me to bomb the the group i couldn't do it like the bomb is in my room and we sort of find out later on that like he's telling the truth and and then they just like let him go were you surprised by this Yes and no. So yes, because it feels like Elizabeth is always killing people just like in this situation. And no, because it felt like maybe there had been a line that was crossed and burning Venter alive that like, and like this guy maybe could be a lead later on or just like human sympathy not wanting to like not wanting to have his blood on their hands at this moment right yeah i mean i think 
And granted, Phillips in a mode of like he's typically wanting less violence, right? Yeah. Is general generally his his response to things, but you know Elizabeth has this line about how they can't ID them, and like yeah, I mean I yes they were both wearing right disguises, right? Philip obviously in his like hangover, I was uh, extra in a cure video. <laughs> uh, I like that he was still in that for you, for yeah, you yeah. and you alone. <laughs> Absolutely, um, you know, and Elizabeth has like a great haircut and everything, but like. There's enough sketches like floating around of them, and to, uh, they have to know that on some level. That like I, I don't know. It seemed more. It's I mean, it seemed incredibly risky from their perspective. And we get this camera shot of like Hans, who clearly was not supposed to be seen, like scurrying down the ladder and running across. And Elizabeth <laughs> is like, "What the fuck are you doing, Hans?" And yeah. so there's just all of these things that would lead you to believe that they are going to, if not like you know, have him burned alive or whatever, like at least pretend to let him go and then like shoot him in from the back as he's yeah. walking away or something. But I think only kind of underscores the point you're making about Philip and Elizabeth's response to the situation. Yeah. And your point about like Philip wanting less violence, like I think is right. I think the other thing that maybe is worth just touching on is like to your point about like they must know that there are like a bunch of sketches out there yeah but also like they've been doing this for a long time so there are always a lot of sketches out there for them Mm -hmm. and also like i think this is one of those times where it's harder for us in 2023 or you know if you watch this in 2015 like same is true to remember and like we get a little bit of this in the like taffet gad exchange like there there might be sketches but like they're not caught on camera there's not like an internet that they're that they're like the sketches are circulating there's not creepy ass facial recognition technology yeah so like yes there are a lot of sketches but like the amount of human error error attributed to sketches is like so much higher than like the amount of error attributed to like AI bots like generating things. And so I think that like, like both things are true. Like, yeah, there are a lot of sketches, but like that can never be the thing that determines like whether or not they're going to take a risk like this. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. One other kind of note about the interrogation itself, the show makes a, I think, smart decision to like, it's clear that uh, Ruben and Kobo and Philip have beat up Venter pretty badly. Like, yeah. There's blood all over his face. Like his clothes are torn and dirty, all of that. He's kind spitting of stuff. a lot. Yeah. They don't show any of that, which I think, A, like heightens this multiple interrogations and all interrogations are interrogations of a sort thing we're yeah. on. But then also, by contrast, amplifies the execution of Venter yeah. uh, for the viewer, right? Well, yeah, and because the the one-on-one time that we do see is not with Venter, it's with Todd. Elizabeth and Todd, yeah. And and there's no violence there, at least not violence that, like, we yeah, see. Yeah, only, like, not giving him his coat when it, a clearly freezing <laughs> warehouse. Right, which is, like, in the grand scheme of violence that Philip and Elizabeth engage in, is not. is <laughs> yeah. very minor. Except for what is maybe the callback we're supposed to think about in back towards the end of season two, when they're on their mission on the base in Marshall Eagle, right? Um, the, oh, the person whose truck they hijacked froze to death. Oh, I, I had forgotten about that. And that was like one of the saddest scenes in season two. Yeah. We didn't even know that dude. Yeah. Um, I wonder if maybe we move from 
Philip and Elizabeth interrogating Venter to uh, Paige interrogating Elizabeth. Yes, or kind of mutual interrogation. Yeah, mutual as Elizabeth is interested in what it is Paige is reading. What is Paige reading, John? Paige is reading "Why We Can't Wait" by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right, so like dutiful student, I'll give her that much. Listen, Paige loves to give herself a reading assignment. Like she does, she does not need a theory ship. Yeah, (laughs) she's she's shipped her own theory. Right, that's not going (laughs) to stop us from shipping more theory. Not at all to Paige. Listen, we assign multiple readings a class sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. Less than some of our other friends. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, giant subtweet of like dozens and dozens of people that we have dragged in private conversations over the years. And recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and you know what the convenient thing is, given our recording and release schedules, uh, right? No one can like go back and figure out exactly like when we recorded this. So there's going to be no like, it's it's like we're in 1983 technology era in terms of whether we're going to be found out of who we're No facial recognition moment. here. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. All right. So anyway, we've got what a great, what a great tangent. One <laughs> of our tangent. best. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So what? So Danielle, what is Paige interrogating Elizabeth about? Well, she's interrogating Elizabeth about Gregory yeah. and about like. So we have a couple of scenes of Paige at the library rolling through that microfiche, and she's looking up like civil rights activism, and she's ultimately looking up Gregory, and she finds an article of that that like shows Gregory's um, like mugshot. So it, it's like the caption of the picture is like shot at a police like this photo is taken out of like a police station. Blah blah blah. Um, and so in this conversation between Elizabeth and Paige. Paige is like, well, I went to the library and like looked up your friend Gregory. She says, well, wasn't he a criminal or like, was he a criminal or wasn't he? And Elizabeth's response is like, things aren't that simple. You aren't just a criminal or not a criminal. She's like, you sometimes have to speak up for what you believe in. Like, don't, don't you do that? You know? Yeah. Which is excellent. Uh, I'm running an agent strategy from Elizabeth here because that both, answers the specific complaint or concern that I would say concern that Paige is voicing, right? And that it's not as simple as being a criminal or not a criminal and does so in a way that makes Paige feel better about herself. And is like, don't you like do stuff with civil disobedience with the church that's technically illegal? Like, could you technically, this is mostly implied, but like, couldn't you technically be considered a criminal? Yeah. And I would say just to like build on that point a little bit about like making, like running the agent, making the agent feel good. Like she's also... There's a version of this where Elizabeth is like surprised and and angry that that Paige is like yes. gone to like look up information. Yes. And Elizabeth is like, "Great, like let's have a like let's have a conversation about it." She does not say like you shouldn't have done that or this this or that. Like it also is like making her feel like, "Oh, she did like she took initiative and did something maybe that Elizabeth didn't expect or maybe that she did expect but right. i thought that too like not having the mom reaction mm-hmm. to that felt important and contrast that 
reaction with like the first 18 reactions to church, right? Where like it's one million percent, you know, the most negative and scolding possible. Yeah. Here it's, it is that like, okay, let us have a conversation about this and like treat you like a grown up, treat you like an adult, treat you like a serious thinker about this. Yeah. It's also contrast to every time Philip reacts to like (laughs) anything Paige is doing. Yeah. That's true. It's like true. It's not policing. It's trying to like, it's trying to see it as like, as an opening for something. Yeah. And it's intriguing to me whether Elizabeth has consciously or unconsciously picked up on the fact that Philip's response to Paige is sometimes like, like infantilizing her or like making her more of a child, like witness if it's seven or six where I think it's last episode where Paige asks him about like, well, why don't you, you know, why don't she asks him, why don't you like engage in civil rights struggle anymore yeah. or something like this? And he goes, you know, an answer you would give a kid as opposed yes. to Elizabeth, like engaging somewhat more seriously and deeply. That question of like, was he a criminal or wasn't he? And, and the things are more complicated is also, I think we saw a version of that question in like, the Martha Clark exchange, like, you know, like, are you my husband? Like, and he's like, I am like, who are you? Yeah. Who are you, Clark? I'm your husband. And it's like, it's both like true and not true. Right. Like there are like, it's, it's a matter of interpretation in, in all of these things. And I think similarly with like Martha and Taffet, you sort of like playing around with, if we're, if the theme here is interrogation, then like playing around with not only what, counts as truth but but whose truth is like you see a version of that it's coming up in a different way here but you see a version of it come up here with between Paige and elizabeth as well yeah danielle you love uh whose truth is it uh, americans moment (laughs) i feel like that's the overarching theme (laughs) (laughs) i love the i you know my cliche is like the family is the nation and yours is like is about truth and perspective I know. Well, that's like my whole thing in in <laughs> political theory, which is like, like, what is truth? Does truth with a capital T exist? Like, I think you can break down most thinkers around that question. And like, it breaks down differently than like... Than any other way of breaking it down. Yeah, that's true. Because like... Marx thinks there's a capital T truth as right. does Plato. And like, you're not going to put the two of them necessarily together. Other than right. like communal family raising, but you know. Maybe. Yeah. And, and so yeah, like. Depending on how one interprets the Republic. Don't get at me. Don't get at me Straussians. <laughs> no, but like that. And I think that that is something like that question of like, what is truth? does it exist with a capital T and and like what's the relationship between truth and knowledge is like that is sort of the guiding guiding beacon of my own like study of political thought and I think it's also something that like caused a lot of tension when I was in grad school because Mm. like that's just not how everybody thinks yeah and I was like how is that not how everyone's thinking about this and so I have always thought about not only Plato and Marx together but also like Hobbes Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Mm -hmm. But in grad school, like, I got a lot of pushback against that because it's not the standard way to think about them. Yeah, and, like, okay, fine. Like, how one arrives at or understands truth is, like, radically different for For Marx than it is for Plato, (laughs) right? Whatever. Like, and there are all these differences. But as a, like, initial cut and division, that's great. 
Danielle out here asking the big questions in political theory, and I'm like, is Elon Musk bad? Yes, here's why. That's my political theory question. Uh, That is also a very important political theory question because, and this is my other thing, and then we can get back to the Americans, (laughs) but my other thing is that, like, everything, like, has, like, everything can be an object of, of analysis, like, in political thought. Yeah. It's just about how you do it. I mean, it's like the classic Foucault line, right? It's not that everything is bad. It's that everything is dangerous Ugh, or something to that effect. What a great line. Yeah. I'm on a Foucault kick. Um. <laughs> do, we, do we want to tattoo that line on our bodies? <laughs> no. Okay. I don't know if the Hamley family would be. They were okay with the owls, but like, well, they were lukewarm on the owls. <laughs> Vicky and Sean were like, Okay, it's your body, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> my my sister, uh, she's a elementary school teacher, and uh, her school's mascot is an owl. So it's awesome. So I went to when I visited Colorado over this yeah. past winter break. I like went to see her at school, and it's like, oh look, I'm doing some free branding for your elementary school. <laughs> Oh my God. Amazing. All right. So I think we still have one interrogation (laughs) to get to other than on top of interrogating the history of political thought that is. So that is (laughs) Nina's. uh, And, you know, the sovereign of the USSR is really manipulating Nina here in (sighs) this episode. In her, they're not technically interrogations, but they're not not interrogations that she faces in this episode. So first she gets the reward for having gotten the information needed about Evie right. um, from like the prison warden or whatever. And Nina delivers this incredible line of forgive me if I'm not jumping up and down, which I, <laughs> I wish know. I could, I wish I could do in Russian and I apologize for not that being was able a to. Great line. Um, and you know, then the further kind of enticement that's like, supposedly if she can determine the capital T truth of what Anton Bakhlanov is up to and whether he's actually doing the work or like yeah. stalling or sabotaging, um, yeah. then she will be let free. So there's kind of that scene, which is both a like, here's some quote unquote good news. And then also it's, you know, <laughs> we'd like you to do one more job. And her second interrogation, which is she shows up at the research Institute somewhere in the, we don't know where. Um, yeah. Of the Soviet Union and uh, to try to work Baklanov. And who, Danielle, does Nina encounter for her second quasi-interrogation at the Soviet research facility? Nina encounters her old boss, who she got banished from the U.S., Vasily, which yeah. is a wild callback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, we, there had been a scene, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. where Vasily had been established as, like, the person in charge of this facility. Yes. From the, like, intelligence side, right? That's earlier in the season or the end of season two. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was also, like, a surprising, like, oh, he's still alive, question mark. So we knew he was alive and we knew he was here, but like I also had forgotten that, uh, much like I've forgotten most things about this show <laughs> after we record about them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a like great camera shot of Nina, who's like looking kind of excited or the most excited she's been able to look in a while. Um, she's gotten, as you've pointed out, some new, some new clothes. She's gotten oh, some new garments, like all of that. So she's waiting to meet like the boss of the facility. Camera is like at a slight angle facing yeah. her, um, on her face. 
and we see somebody walk in yeah. the door, like in this main office, and you, it forces the audience to recall that, like, holy shit, that's Vasily. Yes, yes, yes. And then yes, you yes. get to then you get to watch Nina's face as like yeah. Vasily like rounds the desk, and she can see who it is. Oh my god! Honestly, great camera angles, great shot, great reveal, and. <laughs> He says something like, didn't think you'd ever see me again. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Well, and for him, it's that he never thought he would see her again. Yeah, 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 that's right, right, that's right, right? that's right. Yeah, and then Nina goes for, like, I guess it's too late for me to ask forgiveness. (laughs) Honestly, this is maybe the best exchange in the entire episode. And, like, Nina, like you said, also has, like, the best one-liner, which is, like, forgive me if I'm not jumping up and down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah and the silly gives you know they love they love making the the soviet characters a little more ponderous right so this yeah. gives the line of well we're both to blame i know i need to separate personal feelings and my duty another classic theme of the americans and then like the closer but i'm never going to forgive you well the other thing which i honestly just remembered just right now is like because he had said like the personal feelings from my duty. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like she got him. And I forgot that they were sleeping together for like an extended period of time. I had for- completely forgotten about that. Yeah. There's a lot happening here. A lot happening for sure. All right, Danielle, there's a lot that's going to happen in those segments. Yes. Uh, All right. You know, we love a good segue. <laughs> I'm just going to keep trying. Lots of interrogations. Obnoxious ones. All right. Danielle, may I interrogate you about what's in the dossier this <laughs> Yes, week? please, please interrogate away. All right. Is it true that you supply not quite great books with one <laughs> microphone and contributions to the Google Doc? I mean, yes, but I definitely do not supply the Google Doc itself. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I do supply contributions, but I didn't make the Google Doc. Very true. Um, Okay, so here's what's in the dossier. Listen, I brought this up last week. I'm bringing it up again. Gene was interrogated twice. They are worried about that guy, and I think we should be too. (laughs) So he's back in the dossier. I also want to put, listen, my standing theory this season is that Martha is going to die. I'm honestly surprised she made it through this whole episode, but I feel like them sleeping together is just like, again, another nail in the coffin and would like to bring up that I think Stan also suspects Martha. There's that like Martha like keeps her cool in the interrogation and then she's standing at the like file cabinet or the drawers standing at the file cabinet and Stan is like, okay, like I'm off to Chicago. I'm like very sad boy right now. And Martha's like, oh yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. And Stan's like, everything okay? And Martha does not miss a beat. She's like, I ate something weird at lunch. It's like, you cannot say shit like that while there is a literal investigation happening about this office. Correct. And we should remember here that Stan or Martha, I forget who, has like the dream at the end of season two and in the dream sequence, right? Like Stan catches that Martha is like is like secreting away a document from Mail Robot. It's Stan. Stan yeah. has that that sequence. And then, which like is also just funny when Gad like fights the Mail Robot. Um but yeah, I think that Stan suspects Martha. I forgot about the dream sequence, so I think like 
He also, this is like, again, Stan is good at his job and does not know it. And so is therefore mostly bad at his job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I think the show is asking us to consider whether Stan is suspicious of Martha in that moment. And I think that there's a plausible case that he is. And then there's a plausible case that he isn't that like, he's too a overwhelmed with personal grief, be overlooking Martha in the same way that everybody else is overlooking Martha. Oh, I, I think it's possible that like nothing will come of this like instant of suspicion, but I do think that, um, I don't know if he will cognize it beyond this particular moment, but in this moment, I think he's suspicious of her. Yeah. You have a question for me? I do have a question for you. Do you think we're ever going to see Todd again? Yeah, I think so. I think they let him go and we see him again. Okay. Fair enough. Anything else for the dossier? That's it for the dossier for now. Right. Incredible dossier entries by Danielle. Danielle, where are we starting in Gloss this week? I think we got to pick up with the theme of interrogations. And here, I think we need to talk about Taffet interrogating Adderholtz, which in my notes, I just have, this is uncomfortable and racism written in really large letters. Yeah. It's uncomfortable in part because we had in the last episode, Stan was like, he's a black guy. He's, and then like, doesn't fill it in. And we talked about him being like uppity, right? Like that that's his read. And Taffet from the jump is just like suspicious of everyone, which in general, I like game recognize game. I yeah. see that. Danielle would work for the Office of Professional Responsibility. One were million she an percent. FBI agent. She'd also be a spy, but that's okay. I don't know if I could be a spy. I'm like too anxious. <laughs> that's okay. About we've determined that neither of us yeah. would be effective at spying. True. But I do think that maybe I would be a slightly bit better than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, but. Taffet is just like, he just like goes in. He's like, so your dad was a janitor. And it's like, Adderall has to stop himself from being like, yeah, what of it? Like being aggressive. Like Adderall also like keeps his cool in like a, a deeply frustrating uh, interrogation that in 2023 feels incredibly inappropriate and like feels like in 1983 also would have felt inappropriate. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, certainly Adderholt understands what's happening and Taffet understands the insinuations he's making, right? He uses this like, and even does so in an incredibly suggestive way. So it's like, do you, you know, do others resent you for being new, right? Where new is black, right? That like, there are not probably a lot of black people in the FBI, or at least not at the like rank in the FBI that Adderholt is at, right? So there's like the, there's the, father was a janitor that he went to school at berkeley right yeah. that he's from oakland right so a, a city traditionally associated with black power movements yep. obviously right so there are all these like ways in which taffet is being like hey you're a black person that makes yeah. you somewhat suspicious or maybe not that he keeps making towards adderhall without ever saying it so it's like a very like carefully considered like study in extremely overt subtle racism Yeah, which, like, is maybe part of the, like, deep discomfort around this line of questioning was also linked to the fact that Adderholt is the one who finds the bug. So, like, I don't know. But from Taffet's perspective, that's like, oh, if the person who planted this found that, that might be how they're like, oh, this has run its course, so now it's time to find it, and so I throw the, the blame off of me. 
I mean, I That's see probably Taffet's line of thinking would be my guess. I see that, but it also just feels like it's his line of thinking is it's more likely to be the black person. Yeah. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what, regardless of what moves they've made that demonstrate it is unlikely to be them. It's like more likely to be them. Yeah. And I mean, I think Taffet is, Taffet would give himself the plausible, plausible, would give himself the deniability of this is all just an interrogation tactic. And like what he actually believes about Adderholt or what he believes about black people is irrelevant to him interrogating somebody and using whatever knowledge he has about that person to interrogate them. So like there's the institutional racism, like uh, excuse making built into Taffet's very position um, and actions in the episode. And then there's another part of this conversation, which is like Adderholt, as a good at his job, uh, FBI agent, understands yeah. exactly what's happening, yeah. right? So, like, you know, you said game recognized game earlier in response to yourself. <laughs> so, too, is it Adderholt being like game recognizes like a really shitty racist game that yeah. you're playing? So, your point, like Adderholt, and again, like he's a black man in an extremely white racist institution in the u.s so like has plenty of experience of having to keep his cool right more so than like and almost any other person around him within these institutional spaces or in society at large yeah so he's practiced in that and he also gives this line about how like he had opportunities in the fbi that like he wouldn't have had elsewhere right so there's adderholt's like recognizing exactly the game that's being played and combating it as well. Maybe I'm just like sad about the, the like state of affairs of all of this. And like, I think the other thing, and maybe this connects to like some of the other ways in which race seems to thread through this episode. Right. Which is, so we have this exchange with Adderholt. He is pretty high up in the FBI um, Adderholt and Taffet. Okay. But then there's also like to go back to the exchange that Elizabeth and Paige have around Gregory and around criminality. And like, there also seems to be like a, at least an implicit question of like race happening yep. there, especially if we like take it back to Paige being, you know, visibly worried about when they're in Gregory's relationship and like asking about being a drug dealer and all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. But then there's also like, I think an even something that perhaps complicates these questions of race even further when we have like questions of apartheid in South Africa and like the actor who plays um, Ruben is like, an incredibly dark skinned actor. And I think like, to me, that's, that feels like a very like thought through choice in part because like part of what is in question in, in that instance is also a question of like race and like domination and white supremacy. Right. I mean, especially when you have Venter, like, spouting racist, like, South African apartheid government propaganda out, right? Like, you know, it was Afrikaner, like, blood and sweat that built the nation, and now you are trying to, like, take it and all of that. Um, You know, and you have both Venter and Todd who are of light hair and are very white in their yeah. white skin, right? Um, yeah. As well, just kind of further throughout that. Contrast with Dwayne Thomas playing Ruben and Kobo. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, and the, and there's the, you know, the, you made this point earlier in the episode, Danielle, that like Ruben is saying, you don't understand because you don't have a nation yeah. or because I, sorry, we don't have a nation. You already have a nation. Yeah. Right. And there's that particular moment of like black nationalism as slash internationalism as expressed by a member, like an important person within the ANC yeah. in the episode that is titled divestment. Right. Well, so like exactly. that's of course given the, giving the overall frame to the episode as a whole as well. Yeah. And then like to come back to page reading King, yeah. like there's just, there's a lot happening, mm-hmm. like maybe one level under the surface around questions of like race and, and blackness and this whole set of ideas that might be easily dismissed as one, like one block, but like all of these different interactions and characters and, and moments like offer a kind of richness to this set of debates. They do. Should we go on to less serious fair in Gloss? Yeah, a little bit less serious. Let's go there. A lot less serious. All right, so we've got Jefferson Mays, the actor playing Walter Taffet, making lots of choices. So many choices. As as do the script designers at and, you know, costumers and so on. So we have the way he speaks, right? And that, like, the language he uses and the cadence yeah. and, like, what syllables are emphasized. Like, all of these things yeah. are very, very particular, right? I think, like, today we would say is the show suggesting that, like, he's neurodiverse, right? Or yeah. something like that. Um, but which I don't, you know, certainly in the 80s, I imagine that was not the case. Um, or it was, it was in top of mind anyway. <laughs> incredibly ableist uh, ways. And then, you know, there's the the line about, like, full of ink, which I can't actually do in Taffet's uh, cadence. Yeah. But so there's that. There's uh, his hat. So Hans had a hat uh, that I thought was interesting in this episode or not interesting. Um, Taffet has, like, a kind of fancy hat, right? Like, it's, like, a kind of nice brown hat. It's got, like, a little, like, kind of wraparound with, like, a little kind of, you know, extra tiny bit of flair. And, like, a very, like, white upper class, upper middle class man hat, uh, but at least a slightly interesting version of that. I was going to make a comment about someone we know in their hats, but I'm not going to make the comment. That's but. true. You know what? There is a comparison to make between his hat and Taffet's hat. You're exactly right. <laughs> like that was the first thing that I thought of, but I can't now that you've described it like that. <laughs> yeah. And then kind of my central non-racism question about Taffet yeah. is... So in Adderhold, when he and Adderhold sit down, he's like really hitting on the coffee. Like, yeah. oh, this is good coffee. It's strong. It's like, okay, sure. He's trying, like, this is part of some sort of interrogation tactic. But what I want to know is to what extent the writers and or Jefferson Mays were trying to like make a Dale Cooper Twin Peaks joke slash homage about this particular situation with the particular coffee talk and cadence and language, which I suspect is a Danielle non-reference. I appreciate that you've like thought extensively about this, but I have not seen Twin Peaks. 
And yeah. therefore, this falls That's on my deaf ears. <laughs> predictable. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, quite predictable. Very, very predictable. Okay. So a scene that we haven't had the chance to talk about yet, or kind of two scenes, I guess, yeah. is Arkady gets a phone call from Igor Pavlovich, oh uh, from Oleg's dad, from, on a secure line from KGB headquarters, which is like an extreme power move. That's like the power CC of 1983. From like the Minister of Railways. It was yeah, like, the Minister of Railways. I just happened to be at the, the KGB headquarters to make a secure line oh to God. the head of the Residentura in the US. Dead. And I just happened to have been uh, informed earlier that he's a friend of Chernenko and Chernenko came from the KGB, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right? So it's like an extreme power move. Yeah. And he is calm and like manipulative and firm yeah. all at the same time in his wish for Oleg to get back? I, this might be my actual favorite line of the essay when he's like, or the essay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great slip. The episode, though there are a lot of good ones, but when his dad is like, Oleg is impressionable. That's like what he, the translation mm-hmm. of what he says in Russian. And my notes say, yeah, capitalism. Like, we know that Oleg loves a capitalist indulgence. Like, yeah, he is impressionable. Like, good read, Dad, but also, like, just very funny, like, in that context. Yeah, and I mean, we have, again, this is, like, part of the work that the show does with Oleg over time, where, you know, Igor gives the, he doesn't know what's best for him. Yeah. Like, you know typical deadline. Yeah. But Oleg has already like a in action, like preempted that is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And B, like in what he has told Arkady, right? He says, you know, my dad is always telling me to like make my own choices or to grow right. up or whatever. And for him staying in Washington is actually an example of that. So there's there's that. And then we have um Ar- Arkady calling Oleg into oh his office later on. Um and Oleg tells Arkady that don't cross my dad like he's used to getting his way. And Arkady, love Gorn, my hero's the response best. is, I'm used to dealing with stubborn people. <laughs> and then my other favorite line from Arkady is like, what's the worst that's going to happen? So next time when I go back to the Soviet unions, I can't ride the train. <laughs> And Oleg's look of, like, respect and, like, I, I love this guy and would take a bullet for this man. That was, it was, like, <laughs> so heartwarming. And the way that Lev Gorn delivers that line is just, mm-hmm. like, really, like, so perfect. <laughs> Lev Gorn, come on, not quite great books challenge. That's all I'm saying. When, well, well, we have his handler, uh, John Keller, coming on in a couple of uh, episodes. So right. we'll have That's to, right. like, dig so. into that. So we we love that scene. We love. Um, the other Can scene- I say something else about that scene? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, we get what I'm assuming is the same set as the Soviet embassy, but Igor Pavlovich's, like, supposed office he's calling from in the KGB headquarters, which is, like, Arkady's office, but, like, times 10 in terms of lush, lush. green wallpaper. Like, we have Lenin. So this is, like, the mirror shot to to Martha being interrogated. We've got Lenin over his right shoulder. We've got Chernenko over his left shoulder on the walls. Um, Igor Pavlovich, that is, on a beautiful, like, ornate couch. Beautiful. Really, really beautiful set. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, so I think from there, let's talk a little bit about the scene where at the end of the episode or towards the end of the episode, where Elizabeth comes to ask Gabriel about Misha. Mm -hmm. And I thought that this scene was interesting for a couple of reasons. Like, first of all, the ask about Misha, like asking Gabriel for a favor feels like complicated and interesting. I think, like, in that regard, it is fascinating that it's Elizabeth making the ask. Like, we know that Elizabeth has this relationship with Gabriel, or, like, it's been seated anyway. Um, But the other... And so there's that. But then there's also that it seems like Gabriel is surprised that Elizabeth knows about Misha and that is asking her about this. So what did you you think about that stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's... Elizabeth is making a very considered ask because she understands, I'm sure, that asking Gabriel for a favor is a little bit of, like, further kind of giving of power in that dyad to Gabriel. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's, like, kind of a bit of a power move herself for the the precise thing that you identify, which is it's her rather than Philip making this particular ask, right? So I think a theory that we share um, is that... Gabriel is, like, not happy about this development because he had hopes to just probably strategically reveal Philip's son, Misha, to Elizabeth as a way of getting her more on Gabriel's side vis-a-vis Philip at some point. I think, like, something else that's interesting in in the, like, power plays within this Gabriel-Elizabeth-Philip, like, triad, if we'll call it, or, like, maybe not exactly a triad – is that Elizabeth is already, like, doing the stuff that Gabriel wants. Like, he doesn't need to, like, lord power over her. True, true. Like, she's much more acquiescent to things that he wants and needs, even if, like, maybe sometimes it's, like, not exactly on his timeline. So I think there's a way to read this where it's like, okay, well, by doing something for Philip, it, it makes that easier and philip is always the one who's a little bit more resistant with regard to gabriel absolutely so yeah and i mean gabriel says he'll pass this along and do what he can do right and we'll you know we will find out or not find out as the case may be uh what happens there exactly Uh, um we have the you know one of the main conflicts in this episode main conflict uh gad and the male robot and you just like you can see he's like every time we see Gad in this episode, he's like a little bit more ang- angry, a little bit more frustrated, a little bit more like annoyed. This is sort of right after we get the um, he's asking Taffet if there were any surprises. Taffet's like, "You should have video cameras," and Gad's like, "Yeah, you could just call me negligent." Like he, but he doesn't blow up. But like it's close, and then. Martha tells him that, like, male robot is broken and can't get the doors open. And he, first of all, goes nuts. He just is like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> There's, like, a guttural, like, Rousseau primal cry scream happening. <laughs> like, Ow. <male> robot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I... Mean- I 
<laughs> and the noises the male robot makes when <laughs> it's like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> cat is kicking the shit out of it. <laughs> it ha- listen, that male robot, like this was a long time coming, I feel like. Yeah. So for sure. So Richard yeah. Thomas, who plays Gad, is currently in like a major production of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. As uh is our friend Mike, who was on a couple episodes ago, alerted us to. So I have a friend who has now seen oh. the Richard Thomas. Really? Um, presumably is Atticus Finch. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Makes sense. In to kill a mockingbird. So Oh my god. They said it was a good show. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. All right. So Gad. Technically wins the fight, um, but whether he loses I, in the long run remains to be Yeah, I mean, like, what is winning? What is truth? <laughs> All good. Yeah, what, what is, <laughs> you know, do you, does male robot have feelings? Like, all of these are legitimate oh, questions man. to ask. We really, um, we really messed up doing object-oriented ontology <laughs> without male robot. Okay, Danielle, you say that, and, I, and I'm going to spoil something for you. Next episode is a male robot center. <laughs> episode. Oh my god. So, I there can be a wait. return. I can't wait. A return for the male robot. Oh, maybe we'll episode. do a little bit of Bennett. Ah, there we go. I think we've already decided. And Danielle right. just volunteered to do it. So good. Perfect. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate <laughs> that. All right. Quick fashion corner. Yeah. We've got Hans's hat, which is just like the dorkiest fucking shit I've ever seen in my life. Uh, doesn't look great. We determined canonically that Hans is hot earlier, yeah. but Hans, you got to take this hat off. I get that you're trying to be like sneaky surveillance guy, but like find another hat to do it in, my dude. I mean, yeah, I guess I agree. It felt, the hat felt like schlumpy. Yeah. That's that's the 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 precise adjective I would use. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Perfect reading of it. Okay. Um, I don't know if Liv Gorn was like having a couple of projects going on at once. His hair is a little bit taller than usual. Uh, as Arcadi in this particular episode. Like, the widow's peak is extremely pronounced in this episode. I've, I'm here for it, obviously. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm in the bag for Lev. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, just wanted to point out that, like, his hair is bigger in this episode. I didn't I catch that, but I appreciate your attention to detail. All, all detail when it comes to Arcadi. What else do we have with regard to Fashion Corner here? I want to hear what you have to say about Nina's uh, <laughs> new situation uh, <laughs> in the Soviet research facility. Nina gets like Nina gets a room upgrade. She's like yes. her reward is like getting. I mean, like I guess like her reward is multifaceted, but it felt like the most materially important part was like she's got a nicer room, she's got some stockings that she can sniff, like. Like, she's got a, a like multiple blankets. It's like yeah. a whole a few a outfits. Whole There's like yeah. some nice. I don't know if it was like some fancy soap or like something or lotion, perfume or lotion or something like on know. the on the cabinet. So it's looking a lot like capitalism in that room there. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's got to be in great shape to try to charm uh, uh, Anton Baklanov. Anything you made of their particular interaction? Not so much. I mean, like I guess. If her mission is to figure out if he's, like, lying about science, it doesn't seem like he is, or he's a really good liar about science, but he seems, like, pretty scientist pissed off about, like, something not working. 
Um, but I also appreciated that she was like, I'm here to help you in any, with anything you need. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's gonna, we know that you're good at helping in that way. So we'll, we'll get to see you good at that job too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so Nina multifaceted in her, in her skills, she does bring tea and some sort of like cracker or like hard pastry sort of situation, but no lemon for the tea, which Anton Baklanov is very upset about. Really wanted that lemon. Like, relax, really, my dude. You didn't really. even know this lady before. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get to know her. Don't worry. We'll see it. It is true. All right, Danielle. Should we head to minor character of the week? No, we should head to borrowed nostalgia. Oh my god, how could I forget <laughs> this segment? Well, it's because I was trying to. I was setting up the segue in my yeah, head. No, it was a good segue. Um, so, good alas. Segue. All right, put Danielle, a pause. <laughs> put a pause in that segue. Danielle, where should we start with in unremember- remembering the unremembered 80s? Pages microfiche archive hours. Oh, I just, that microfiche popped up and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in the public library in Greenlawn in 1994. <laughs> I definitely learned how to use microfiche at yeah. some point in my yeah. education. For me, it was something we like, learned about in maybe in middle school i think our middle school had a microfiche machine or we could go to the middle school and the high school were like on the same kind of campus so you could like walk to the high school and use that library i don't know that i've ever used one but i like loved its presence in this episode i think i've once used microfiche in my life okay yeah well from microfiches to what ussr computers Uh, What do you have to say about those? Uh, Just that, like, the gigantic-ass computers at the Soviet research facility in the room where Baklanov is working, and there are these, like, they don't get names, they don't talk, there's nothing, like, characters working on these, like, banks of computers that are, like, eight or nine feet tall. There's all sorts of things happening. I don't know, like, old computer history that well, but I just really appreciated the attention to detail and the design of these old ass computers. It looked really official. Like it looked really official in terms of the size and the like level of focus and just like the clutter of it all. Yeah. And meanwhile, Anton is just like on this tiny by those standards, like you know, it looked like first gen Mac, which yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I actually had in the Soviet Union. In, yeah. Much less in early 83 when I don't think there's any uh, Apple's machines. Yeah. We've also got some uh, some fashion in the 80s. So we do. Adderhold's suit, I'm really into. Okay. Um, so we, it's previously established, of course, that all of the American men, their suits are like quite large yeah. and boxy and needs some tailoring. Roger so Smith we, style. So we've got that. <laughs> but I will say it's not what I would choose or I think people would choose today, but like the uh the pattern of Adderholt's suit is like spot on. It's like not pinstripes. It's like a little bit like blocky stripes that yeah. was going on. I was into it. Nice shade of gray, like lighter gray for him. It worked. So listen I was I- a fan of Adderholt suit here. I feel like Adderholt looks good. I feel like he looks better in these suits than a lot of the other people. So, like, yeah. it's still boxy. You mean like and, a gawky ass Noah Emmerich? Stand. Yeah, or even Gad, who it feels like the sleeves are like too long, and he's just <laughs> like. <laughs> but see, D- Danielle, you can't beat the shit out of male robot 
in a tight-fitting suit. So he, like, actually was perfectly dressed for the occasion. Listen, as someone who has watched Harry Styles split his his (laughs) tight pants multiple times, like, I feel that. Like, that actually does feel like you need a little give if you're going to be, like, moving around. Whether it be, like, kneeling on the ground or beating up mail robot. <laughs> okay. You you got the requisite Harry yeah. Styles Um we're proud of you. You've got one more note in Bar uh, Nostalgia. When Paige is like reading at the dinner table and Elizabeth comes in, the cereal that's on the table is Alphabets, which was like a cereal that in the Hanley household we were strictly Cheerios and Golden Grahams family. And so whenever we had anything else, it was like a treat. And Alphabets was like a treat cereal, even though it's roughly the same as Cheerios, just the the things are in letter shape. Yeah, I think there's probably slightly more sugar in Alphabets Maybe. than regular Cheerios. Not well, a lot, but a little bit more. Well, I thought that Golden Grahams were a healthy cereal until like a year ago, and they're <laughs> not. It's just like my parents could buy them at Costco in bulk, so they did. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Look, I I had a lot of cinnamon toast crunch and Lucky Charms growing up. <laughs> oh, so. I love a Lucky Charm. Love it so oh, much. All right. Well, maybe we can keep track of cereal watch. Yeah. Uh, I think we've also had Apple Jacks and Corn Pops in this show. Corn Pops have definitely made it in. Corn Flakes have made it in. Yeah. I think yeah. Apple Jacks, too. I think maybe the... Maybe at Stan's house there were Apple Jacks one time. Yeah. I, do, I did enjoy Apple Jacks as well. That was a more rare occasion. It, like... That I didn't was, eat a I didn't eat a lot of fruit when I was a kid, so like same. apple jacks in my mind counted as fruit. Now okay. I like well, <laughs> Danielle, I was like nine years old. Like what the fuck do I know? But um you know, now I now I will eat an actual apple. Um but Honestly, if someone gave me apple jacks, I don't know if there's gluten in apple jacks or not. But if not, I would go to fucking town on a on a bowl of apple jacks. It's a glow up. It's a glow up. And, now he eats an actual apple. In in some oat milk or almond milk. Okay. All right. Let's get into minor character of the week. Sure. John had a great segue before um, from talking about Nina in the, uh, you know, in the new facility that she's in. I think the minor character of the week is the lady who just is, like, showing her around that facility. So, I guess, like, this woman is the warden. We tried to find her name and, like, the character the character name or the woman who's playing her. We couldn't find it. But I just feel like she did a great job showing Nina to that room. I also, I was watching this and I was like, okay, they go through, like, one doorway. And I'm like, she could shut that door and start to beat the shit out of Nina. And I would not be surprised. So I just was like, you know, she was... Then we see her like pitter pattering around after Nina's brought the the tea without lemon. So that warden lady, minor character of the week, just like yeah. doing a good job. She's clearly there as like the watcher or discipliner of Nina. Her fussing about and the movements is is well done. I wish that she had a character name Same. or if we could discover who the actress was playing her. Um, but alas, IMDb does not have anything for us here. It has failed us, but that woman didn't fail us, so yeah. we appreciate her. Right, a true true Tavarish, true comrade. Um, <laughs> so I, I did enjoy, I feel if it was Igor to Arkady or Arkady to, to Igor, um, the like use of Tavarish, so comrade, um, yeah. on the phone call in like a very pointed way. So I saw that in the translation, like that they're using comrade, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. 
<laughs> Especially because we then get, right, I think it's Ruben to Philip, right, call some comment. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's about to leave, right? Oh, this is a good one. All right, I think we have made it to the cave. We may run two random theory generators here. We had to uh, run the second one because I refused the first one. Yeah, so the first one... Well, and we've, we've also already done the first one multiple times in this series. That's true. Uh, we have done Thomas Hobbes at least once, maybe twice in the Americans, and honestly, we maybe did a Hobbes Mar- Marvel. We probably as did well. like five Hobbes Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did. A, I think we did a Hobbes Moon Knight, uh, yeah, or yeah, excuse yeah. me, Hobbes Loki situation. Possibly, yeah. Uh, So second theory generator number that comes up is number 30, and this is a very appropriate one, so good job. You know, we take care of our uh, machines that provide us information, (laughs) unlike Mail Robot, uh, (laughs) is number 30, one Charles Mills. So Danielle, Charles Mills uh, is, I think, kind of a perfect person to think about that picks up on some of the points we've identified and kind of things we've discussed about the way that the show is depicting how anti-black racism functions yeah. and functions vis-a-vis the state yeah, 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 politics here in this episode, right? So what Mills, RIP, he passed away a couple of years ago at this point, but um, you know, I got to interview him in 2017, For 2018. Always already, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Which, was, which was really cool. Um, although I left the grad center before he came to the grad center. Oh, okay. I know some folks who actually got to meet him there. But anyway, I, I met him on a talk he gave there, I guess. So anyway, so Charles Mills is most well known as the author of The Racial Contract. This is a book, if I want to say 2001, that um, follows on and kind of takes up some of the arguments of Carol Pateman's The Sexual Contract. Yeah. Um, right, so Pateman's you know, argument in a nutshell is that prior to the social contract, of social contract theory kind of founding political society, all of these sorts of things, there's a sexual contract among the men who will then go on to form the social contract right. to bound themselves together to ensure like political power and violent access to women's bodies yep. right? and establishes public privacy, all these sorts of things. So what Mills is thinking about with regards to this argument is another prior contract to yeah. the social contract, which is the racial which she calls the racial contract, which establishes the bounds of um, personhood or humanness, right? Yeah. To establishes who, i.e. white men, are counting as human and who, i.e. all others, who to varying degrees are other, are others, are non-human, are subhuman, are less than human. Um, and he reworks how those categories function over time. So like right. tracing from like, uh, the racial contract to uh, he and Pateman's book together, the contract and domination. Yeah. Um, 2007. The, yeah. Something like that um, is, is interesting. But anyway, so Mills is arguing that like there's a global, right. Global thinking about colonialism, thinking about kind of both, um, both black people and indigenous people of various locations around the world as those established to be subhuman and thus not having access to yeah the political freedom, the rationality, the set of rights, the set of hypothetical safety from violence receiving from received from the state, all of these sorts of things that the social contract is supposed to establish among right. those who are contracting in, right? So Mills is arguing that, you know, prior to that, along with Pateman and then on the sexual contract, I think we've done Pateman as well. We have done Pateman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not quite great books history. So I think that was like early season two, maybe. Um, 
But anyway, so there's this prior contract, and then this is then social contract theory, and most contemporary interpreters of yeah. political theory looking yep. back, like actively or passively to varying extents, like or willfully uh, are yeah. ignorant, willfully ignorant of the racial contract that establishes this society or establishes the kind of prior set of who counts as human to thus be included in the political sphere. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could do like the next three hours on yeah. those to try to get into some could... of the intricacies. So like, I don't know if I should stop there or keep going. First of all, I could listen to you like give glosses of Pateman and Mills from now until the cows come home and feel very happy with my <laughs> life. Like I'm like, yeah, this all makes sense. And John is like breaking down like I I think that Mills and Pateman are both have like quite complicated interpretations of social yes, contract theory. Definitely. And so you have just broken down like two of the more complicated thinkers in a really helpful way that also links them. I would say like the thing I would add to that or just like something to like highlight from your from your discussion is like this idea that there's a there's a division between like who counts as human and who doesn't count as human and that that division is is most often whether with regard to social contract theorists like Hobbes or Locke. And, you know, Pateman is, is most readily engaging with those two, but there are others in there too. Um, so whether with regard to social contract theorists or like contemporary, like interpreters or contemporary theorists. Rawls, right? Both of yeah. them are speaking Rawls. Yeah. Like this idea that like not everyone counts as human is like a really big deal. Because for someone like Rawls, who's thinking about like freedom and equality, right? If like what what Mills is saying is like equality is a fiction because like whatever inclusion you're talking about with regard to your theory of justice is is like already not like not not fully inclusive of all the people in the world because like the definition of equality functions on like including all humans and like race makes people with regard to this theory, not count as humans. Right. Like the domination contract yes. is limiting <laughs> who is able to then participate in the social contract or yeah. various domination contracts are yeah. delimiting who is able to participate in the social contract. Yeah. And so then like, if we take some of those ideas and start to think about like the racial contract and that idea of participating in the social contract, participating in political society, right. Which is like yeah. another way to think about it and bring it back to some of the stuff we've been talking about in the Americans in this episode, like part of Ruben's like reaction is about like part of his, his political position is about the violent exclusion yeah. of like the violent exclusion of people who look like him, who have his, like who occupy his position in society as a function of race. Like like when he says, I don't have, I don't have a country. I don't have a nation. You do. You don't understand. Like he's like saying like my race is used against me and it's used to justify my continued subjugation. Mm -hmm. Right. With, with apartheid being, you know, one of globally, certainly not the only, but yeah. one of the most 
concrete, yeah. legalistic manifestations totally. of what Mills is talking about with the racial contract. And, and to even kind of take your point further, Danielle, there's a way in which in Kobo and the ANC more broadly are like kind of doing a parallel thing with regards to Mills. Because yeah. Mills specifically, it's like Nkobo's suggestion that what's necessary is for Black South Africans yes. to have a nation. Yes. Right? And so like there's a, even though nationhood has, you know, historically been like, you know, or with with the origins of a particular version of nationhood mm-hmm. in colonial in the colonial West, like has been used to subjugate non-white peoples um, around the world, right? But still, the nation becomes an important like in the, in, yes. in the anti-colonial movements in the 20th century, 100%. like the important thing. And you know, we can go to well, and Gachi, we can go to others to think about yeah. that. And then, like one of Mills's more controversial things, yeah. like among kind of left theory, is he insists whether it's liberalism, whether it's like a radical revisioning of like Kant, whether it's Ugh. the contract itself, <laughs> yeah. right? That these tools can be turned back against their makers yes. so that there can be an anti-racist, like corrective or rectificatory yeah. social contract, right? That there can be uh, kind of a notion of corrective justice that yeah. we like add into like a reconstituted notion of Rawls's ideas um, about principles of justice. So he's like, I wouldn't call it a recuperation, but like a turning back or turning against. And so like, I think there's perhaps a parallel to draw between Nkobo's emphasis on the nation yeah. as like the form through which something essential to Black freedom or Black personhood yeah. for Black South Africans is achieved, paralleling Mills's attempt to like rework or reroute these what for him tools and he like yeah he disagrees with audrey lord he has this beautiful essay that's like really complicated um about that he actually kind of likes rousseau if you read rousseau in the right way there's all sorts of uh, intriguing things happening with mills yeah no i'm i'm excited that you brought up the like the the essay in relation to lord stuff and just in general like thinking about like the way that he positions these like I mean, you're right. He calls them tools and that it is not, I think one of the things Mills is trying to push back against, and this is part of where like the controversial part of his reading comes in, right? Is this idea that like the social contract is inherently racist, right? And I think that is a, like Mills has called and like, like would continue to call this a a misinterpretation of his ideas. It's not that the contract is inherently racist. Something that Mills does that you have highlighted that I think sets him apart from other contract theorists is like he is trying very hard to ground his analysis in like the lived realities that he's trying to understand. And Mm -hmm. something that social contract theory does is, is like, they're in some ways like fabricating like a version of reality. And so part of what Mills is saying is like, if we actually look at the ways in which this has played out, this sort of like, uh, like move towards domination or domination, like by virtue of declaring like a set of bodies, not human. Right. It's that those same tools that are used to justify or that are built out of that, like, 
that maintenance of subjugation might also be used in other ways. And I think like that is an incredibly provocative thing to say. Like, it's not just that the contract is racist, like end of story. It's like, it's about the way we use these things and the kind of legitimacy we afford to them. Yeah, absolutely. There's more to say about Mills, oh, but we can always. we can uh, we can close the cave there. Mills obviously coming back out of the oh, cave with us. Of course, my theory ship Danielle. Yeah. Um, back to our earlier conversation, I would like to theory ship oh. Paige with uh, give her Khalil Gibran Muhammad's "The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America" around this question of criminality. Nice. I would also, I would just add to that, like, this isn't a book, but something I think that both of us have assigned at different moments in our classes. I would theory ship, uh, page watching the documentary 13th. Um, I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, just like, let's be a little bit more critical of what crime, what counts, what is crime, who's doing crime and like throwing that term around. Absolutely. Let's give her a new Jim Crow while we're at it. Yeah. Why not? Why not? She she loves a reading assignment. She does. She does. We've come to the end, Danielle. We have come to the end of the episode. Thanks, as always, producer Amy. Um, up next in the feed in two weeks will be American Season 3, Episode 9. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I love when Danielle like gets to the title because she's not looking ahead until we get to the end of the Google Doc. And here we are. Do male robots dream of electric sheep? What a banger of a title. I'm yeah. so excited for this yeah. episode. I'm, I'm assuming you know the reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Person, so. I am, I'm in a sci-fi reading group, so I do yeah. know the reference. Yeah, I've, I assume so. Amazing. I love it. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at Not Great Books TV. You can email us at notgreatbookstv at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.